Okay, so this is a reading from Revelation 9. It says, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stings like scorpions, and in, in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew was Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, that is destroyer. The, the first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar uh, that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues. Still, they did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Lord, we, uh, we believe your word is truth and is life. So please, would you help us by your spirit to hear and see the truth and the life in your word this morning. Amen. Um, how many people have seen... It's quite an old film now, but The Truman Show, that old Jim Carrey film, yeah? It's kind of a bit of a classic, isn't it? It came out in the late 90s when I was a lad. So, um, and uh, in that film, if you haven't seen it, I am sorry, I'm going to ruin it, but it's like so old that I, don't, I think that's fair. Um, Truman Burbank is the main guy, and he lives his life thinking that all he perceives is all there is, doesn't he? And everything he can see and everything he knows is the ultimate reality of the world around him. But the film is all about the slow uh, um, realization dawning on him, and in the end, the ultimate discovery that there is more to life than meets the eye. And he discovers the truth behind his world, uh, and eventually he finds, uh, he goes on a quest and finds freedom in it. Uh, in the film, of course, his, his whole world is a reality TV show. 
So everyone he knows is an actor, and every building he is in is a film set, and every experience that he has has been contrived for the viewers to enjoy. And freedom for him is discovering there is a real world beyond that where you're not just in a, in a TV set and in a film show, isn't it? Well, listen, Revelation does something similar for us. It leads us to the ultimate reality beyond which that which we so often see and experience in, in, in the world around us. It points us to deeper and truer things which shape our lives. And if we discover them, we find freedom. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're all actors and your whole existence is a reality TV show. But then how would you know? Just think about that, huh? But, but Revelation does show us that there are spiritual realities that actually shape all of life. There are unseen things that so many of us have no clue about at all. And and the vision of the seven trumpets, which we kind of read the middle bit of. So we're going from chapter 8, verse 6, all the way through to the end of chapter 11 today. Uh, Bo just read the middle for us. They take us on another pass through history. Remember last week we said these are like different action replays of history. uh, And showing us things from a slightly different angle. So this week we get a slightly new perspective on on the events of history. Uh, And these trumpets, these seven trumpets, give us a window on reality for the lives of those who are not Christians. The lives of those who are not God's people. And they show a different perspective on life. So if this is you, if you're, if you're listening in today, or, or you're here today, and, and you, you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, then this is life for you. you know, so we love at the Gate Church having people around the church and people here on Sundays and, and interacting with us who are just checking us out, just checking Jesus out, who are interested, who've got questions. We love people around to, uh, us who, who kind of say they're Christian, but if they're honest, they don't really know what that looks like in life, and it doesn't really impact their life uh, in, in many ways. Well, if, if that is you, this message is on point for you today. But it comes with a warning, and I want to be up front at the beginning. It's not easy to swallow. But the truth can be like that, can't it? The real truth doesn't make it any less true. So many people today, so many people around us, perhaps you see life in the world in just this very naturalistic way. Life is just all that we can taste, hear, see, smell, and touch. It's just everything we can interact with with our senses, and there's not much more depth or not much, not much more meaning to life than that. And, and the supernatural for us, the idea of this other world or another realm is reduced merely to entertainment in Marvel films or Harry Potter books or whatever else. And it's all very entertaining and it's fun and it's interesting, but it's nothing serious. It's just made up and it's silly. And so people either mock the idea of God and Satan or quite frankly just ignore them altogether. And Revelation just blows that apart for us. And it helps us see life as it really is, and it helps us see spiritual realities as they uh, they really are and as deeply meaningful and important. Now, last week, we've been seeing this in Revelation already, but it's it's important to remember these things. And last week, if you like, we saw um, a perspective on the chaos and suffering of history from heaven, kind of looking down from up. Well, now we're seeing a, a perspective on the chaos and suffering of history from hell, looking up to earth. And so in these chapters, Revelation 8 to 11 explains the reason for so much suffering and the reason for so much brokenness in the world and in your life, if you don't know Jesus and what God is wanting to do for you through it. Let's dig in and and, and let's just see that and and explore that. So the first big idea that we're going to see in chapters 8 and 9 are the sufferings of the people of the world. 
you take notes, the sufferings of the people of the world. Uh, and you get in 8 and 9, these six first trumpet blasts, and they pull back the curtain on what is wrong with the world, uh, particularly for those who are not the people of God. Now listen, let's just be clear before we get into this. It's not that calamities and sufferings don't also affect the people of God. Clearly, they do. And we see that in other places in Revelation and in the Bible. And if you come here for long, you'll know that we talk about that quite a lot at the Gate Church. But that is not what this action replay focuses on. This has given us that different angle and perspective. Look down at chapter 8, verse 13. It says it's about the inhabitants of the earth who are being warned of these woes. In verse 4 of chapter 9, we read that it's only those who have not been sealed by God, i.e. not his people, who are affected by this fifth trumpet. And so the the perspective on on chapter 8 and 9 is on those living uh, for the earth, those who have made the world and its ways their ultimate home, those who have no space or category for God and his purposes. And so it's a warning to people who are living in God's world without reference to the one who made them who are living in God's order, about reference to one who designed them and who knows how they work and are what they for, that life doesn't go well that way. For those of you who know your Bibles, it's much the same as, and it echoes the plagues of Exodus in Egypt, which was a warning to Pharaoh and to Egypt that life without God does not work well. And so, uh, as, as the first four trumpets sound there from verse 6 of of chapter 8 and following, Uh, we see that the natural order of things goes haywire. In those first four trumpets, the earth and the waters and the skies are all affected. It's kind of like mayhem breaking out in the natural world. You've got hail and fire. You've got earth and trees being burned up. You've got sea creatures dying. You've got ships destroyed in storms. The sun and the moon going dark. It's, It's natural disasters and calamities and those kinds of things. This is the state of life in the world. Whether it's Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, uh, destroying Pompeii and the surrounding area, or it's the earthquake in uh, Haiti this year in 2021. We know that history is littered, don't we, with these natural disasters and things of this type. These things that attack the quality of life in the world, they attack our food source and our fresh water supplies and our safety of sea travel and our security and threaten life. and, And so many think that there's just no moral substance to these things. The world is just born out of chaos, they think, and so it's full of chaos, and so it's just blind, pitiless chance if you happen to live in a country where there's earthquakes or, 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 or next to a volcano going off. There's no deeper significance or moral meaning in these things. That's what so many say. But Revelation and God's word gives us a different perspective. Something is up with the world. Something is wrong. Something is, it has gone wrong somewhere along the lines. We're out of sync, us and the world, with our creator. See, the Bible describes a world that was made good, with no natural disasters, no calamities, no no issues of that type. But ever since our rejection of God, the cosmos has fallen away from him and has fallen into disrepair. It's been groaning under the curse of sin. It's in great pain and suffering, and it's expressed in in, in these various different ways. But actually, what's what's clear here in in Revelation 8 is, is that Mother Nature is still... Uh, ultimately under heaven's control. So as brutal as, as much of this natural suffering is, it could be so much worse. Did you, did you see that? Um, we didn't read it, but if, if you just scan through, you can see this restraining influence from heaven. Oh, John, would you mind just getting the lights back on? Is that okay? The, the restraining influence from heaven. 
So it's only a third of the earth and the trees that have burned up. It's only a third of the sea that's turned to blood. It's only a third of the ships that are destroyed. It's a third of the day without light. Twelve times you read it, but it's just a third of these things. Yes, life is seriously affected. And these disasters can be calamitous, but it's not totally destroyed. We'll see why in a moment, but for now we can just log that that is a mercy and a grace of God in action. Now, as brutal as those natural disasters are, Verse 13 of chapter 8, chapter eight, those without the hope of Christ are warned with woe about the next three trumpets. They haven't seen it yet. The trumpets 5 and 6. Now we're not so much focused on the natural world, but now on how the forces of hell and darkness are unleashed on people in the world. And what we read of is, as these trumpets five and six sound, these demonic hordes of the underworld rise up, not to afflict the natural world, but to, to afflict people who are made in God's image and for his glory, but don't have God's seal on their heads. Those who are in rebellion against their maker. And, and as we read in, in, in the fifth and sixth trumpets of, of this demonic horde rising up, it's these terrible-looking creatures. The fifth trumpet has this cloud of these evil-looking locusts, thick as smoke, blackening the sky, and they swarm out onto the earth. And they're under the direction, we read, of this angel of the abyss, whose name is the destroyer. And then the sixth trumpet is this great army of two million, which was the, bigger than the Roman um, uh, Empire at the time, the population. Sorry, no, t- um, 200 million. Ghastly riders and horses unleashed from the pit of hell. We read they've got heads like lions and tails like snakes, and they're breathing fire and smoke and sulfur. And they're terrifying visions. It's supposed to be terrifying. You know, it's like that horror... I don't really watch horror films, but if you do, you know, you kind of watch it kind of behind the pillow because you kind of don't really want to watch it, but you kind of do, and it's, it's, it's really terrifying, isn't it? We're just too scared. So I, I've been studying uh, this, this pretty hard this week, and I'm not sure I get everything that's loaded in the imagery here. In fact, I know I don't. It's difficult to know what to make of some of it, if I'm honest with you. And there's quite a lot of different opinions that I've read out there about what these things represent, from attack helicopters to cancer cells, from terrorist bombs to the slow demise of dementia. But this is where in Revelation, we said it at the beginning, we need to just remember to focus on the big idea. Don't get caught up on on making definite connections on every point of detail. What is clear here is that these tormentors are unleashed from the underworld and from the pit of hell, and they come to attack people on earth. And they do so under the direction and under the authority of this evil angel. We read it's this star that has fallen from heaven to earth who's been given the key to the shaft of the abyss. It sounds very much to me like Satan in the way that he's described elsewhere in the Bible. If it's not him, it's at least an evil representative doing his bidding. Some kind of angel under him. But this is what is clear here. This is the stronghold of the rebellion against God. This is the stronghold of the rebellion in the world against his good purposes. And so this is the place from where all evil and all hardship and all suffering and horror emerges. Satan in his fury against God unleashes hell on earth and on people. 
these torments come by these evil demons and it wreaks havoc in people's lives. He's this agent of chaos just disrupting everywhere. Hardship and suffering and pain. You know, it's so bad that people are desperate to die and yet death eludes them. Can we in the church be a bit more bold in calling out what we see Satan doing in the world and calling out as bad and as evil? Can we call out his work and say, no, that is the destroyer, that is the adversary of God and his people, and we hate what he does. We hate what he does to people's lives. We hate what he does in the world. The way he oppresses and entraps and enslaves people and causes them to suffer greatly. And yet even here, there is the grace of God. Do you see it? See, but Bo read it to us. The locusts can only torture people, and even then they can only do it for a limited amount of time. They're kind of, they're, they're hemmed in. The horsemen are only permitted to kill a third, again, not total destruction. You know what? Even death eluding those who seek it in the face of this great suffering. Well, that is a mercy of God. For there is a death that is worse than physical death. There is an eternal death. And so that brings us to the purposes of God in all of this. Why can I talk about God's mercy and his grace when we're thinking about about such evil? Well, let's read again the end of chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. See, all of these experiences in these six trumpet blasts, they are a warning to people and a chance to repent. That means to turn back to God. You see, it doesn't go well for you when you cut out and ignore your designer who knows how you work, who knows what you were made for, and you turn to things that he's created as your source of absolute hope and life and, and, and meaning and satisfaction and purpose. These are the idols that, uh, that, called here that we worship. Whether it's other people or it's our bank balance for our security or it's our homes for our comfort or it's sex or it's our iPhone or it's our social media profile or our success in our career or alcohol and substances, whatever it could be, any of these created things around us, we think we have control of them as we put them at the center of our lives. Yet the truth is they own us. And the brokenness of the world and our experiences of hell on earth, writ both large and small across our lives, are a glitch in the system, are a warning sign for us of these spiritual realities that we so often ignore, but we really should not ignore. These things that we so often trust in, these idols, these things that we make the center of our lives for life and hope instead of God, ultimately can't save us. They won't hold the weight of those things. They can't bring life. And so God is kind in allowing them to fail us, in allowing our earthly security in them to be taken away so that we have a chance to be exposed and turned back to the God who alone is life and who alone gives life. 
These things are a warning and a call back to God. Of people made in his image to know and love him and live for his glory in his world. The question is, if this is you, will you turn back to him? Too often as we read here in verse 20, 21, no, we won't. Still we won't. Instead, we double down and we harden our hearts and we tighten our grip of these idols, just like Pharaoh in the Exodus story. We exchange the truth about God for the lie that we find glory in life in these other things which are no gods at all. I, I, I think it's true. We need to be careful here, but I think it's true that for those who are not trusting in Christ, one thing God has been doing this last couple of years with all people have faced is calling us out and calling us back to him. That's what God's saying to his world. He's removing all earthly security, all earthly hope that we so often, all these other things that, that, that we rely on. He says, will you repent? Will you come back to me? Will you turn back to me? A world that has rejected me. And he's also been very kind in that. It's been brutal, hasn't it? And yet it's not even a third of a percent of people in this country that have died from COVID, let alone one third. God has been kind. He gives us a warning, and yet he's held it back. What will it take for us to listen? What will it take for our country and our nation and the people around us to listen to God calling us out? It's been famously said that in the end, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, are those who come back to God and trust in him and seek his will. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. If we really want to choose a life without God, if people around us really want to choose a life without God, he will let us have it. But the suffering in the world that people experience is a warning of how life goes when you start to cut God out. And it is an invitation back to the source of life. I said it was hard to swallow up front. It is, but it's true. And that leads us into chapters 10 and 11, which we didn't have a chance to read, but we'll work through now. And and here we see our second big idea, and that is the witness of the people of God. So this is what you and I, as, as people of God, those in the church, are called to do. Because you see, it's not just suffering that actually inevitably leads people to repent. Often that can harden them in their hearts and in their rebellion. But people need to hear the gospel in the midst of their suffering so that they can repent. They need to hear the good news of Jesus. And so with whatever platform or whatever opportunity we have, we are witnesses to the good news of God in the world. Whether it's me trying to preach it here on this platform on a Sunday, whether it's you just with the platform with a friend and a friendship you have, you have a chance to speak to them, or just someone you meet out on the streets around the city and an opportunity to have a conversation, or in the context of your family or in your workplace or amongst your neighbours, wherever you have opportunity and you're interacting with people, we are witnesses to Christ and to the good news of him. You see, yes, people are... Sorry, we we see this in in, in the two visions, in in chapters 10 and 11. And like last week, chapters 10 and 11 are like a bit of a still frame in the action replay between the last two trumpets. And and, and what we see in that still still frame are like the field instructions for the church. This is what's true about the church in in this time and place. This is for us, how we're to live out. And and so people are experiencing uh, and, uh, and suffering and experiencing hell on earth. 
And what we need to be doing is pointing them to the hope of Christ in the midst of that. And life in Christ. Now, as we do that, we're going to come under pressure. We're going to come under attack. And we're going to experience suffering ourselves for doing that. And we just we see that in these two visions. So the first one's in chapter 10. This is this vision of this mighty angel who comes from God in heaven, and, and we read that he has the cloud around him, the cloud of God's presence and the rainbow, which is the, the representation of God's covenant faithfulness and God's promises. And this angel has the face like a sun, and he has legs like pillars of fire, and his voice is like the voice of a roaring lion, and he's holding this scroll in his hand, and he swears by the God who lives forever and ever. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, that sounds very much like someone we've met before in the story, very much like Jesus back in Revelation 1, and, and it is. Some people think this might be Christ. It probably isn't Christ, but it's, again, probably his, his representative or a mighty angel coming uh, on his behalf. And, and he has this scroll of how God's kingdom will come on earth, and he gives it to John to eat. And he calls John to prophesy about peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is a commission on John and all of the servants of God, Christians, that's you, to ingest and then speak the words of God so that his kingdom might come on earth as heaven. And although we don't know all things, we don't have all answers, in the midst of this, John hears these um, seven funders speaking this thing, and he's about to write it down, and, and the angel says, no, seal that up. Don't, you know, we don't know what they said. We don't know everything. We can't answer every answer. We do know what we need to know. And John eats the scroll. And as he eats the scroll, it's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Just that had been for Ezekiel, who ate a similar scroll before, one of God's prophets, who declared the truth of God's word to a rebellious and a hard-hearted people as well. You see, this is the bittersweet gospel message. It's, it's, It's so sweet because it's the truth that saves us and brings such life and hope and joy and and it's so life-giving to those who believe in it and yet at the same time it's bitter to us because it's a a painful burden that we carry how do you think it feels to prepare to and then stand up to preach a sermon like this today there's there's some bitterness mixed in Or, or as you share it with those who don't believe in Jesus and you experience the pain of rejection as people just a group of guys just laugh in your face and walk off. That's happened to someone in this church recently. Or it's happened to some other people. People threaten you with um, violence in response. Or, or, or maybe it's just the bitterness of, quite frankly, just feeling like a right idiot. Because you believe something that just the world and everyone around you just thinks ridiculous, even reprehensible. You just feel a bit stupid. But still, we must keep taking it in. We must be believing, ingesting, and speaking the truth. Like Ezekiel, we need a spiritual backbone. We need the power of God not to succumb to the ways of those around us. It's followed in chapter 11 by these two witnesses. And they're an example of this bittersweet gospel commission that we all have as servants of God. These two witnesses are appointed uh, in these days of opposition and suffering. The imagery here taps into two great prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And it gives us this model for the people of God holding holding out the word of God to a world that is rejecting the authority of God and the reign of God. 
And so in chapter 11, as, as, as we read about these two witnesses, it describes this time where people um, who are not gods trample on and oppose the people of God, who are faithfully and courageously bearing witness to God in the face of this opposition. Times just like these. And, and, and it's described a few times, the time period, and that's got some significance to it. It's three and a half years and 42 months and 1,260 days. They all kind of mean the same thing. It's a period of suffering for God's people that is bound and limited. So yes, it's suffering, but there is an end coming. And so during this time of suffering, the people of God maintain a witness to God, and yet this beast emerges from the abyss. We'll see more about this in coming weeks. And he utilizes the opposition of the nations to the people of God, and he overpowers, and he kills these witnesses, and they're publicly humiliated and shamed. And the world rejoices that these witnesses to God have been defeated and overcome, and their bodies are exposed for all to see. And the world is celebrating and gloating over the defeat of the people of God. And it happens in this great city, which could be Sodom, which is notoriously notorious for its immorality. Or it could be Egypt, which is notorious for its hard-hearted rejection of God. Or it could be Jerusalem, which is notorious for its rejection of Christ as Lord. This is, in fact, any city, any society where God is rejected and the way of the world runs at large and rules. It is any city where it's a hard gig to stand for the truth of God. It is this city, it is this place, and it is this time. And so the nations trample and oppose the people of God, and yet with courage God's people stand firm. And they hold fast to their testimony of Christ and his word and his goodness and the good news of the gospel of Jesus, because they know it is their only hope in life and death. In fact, we hear that our witness torments people. Torments people in the world because it reminds them of the truth of God that all creation declares and that deep down everyone knows and has been made to know is true, but they're desperately trying to avoid until in the end God brings this new risen power to his people after they've kind of been defeated in some way because of their faithful word of testimony. And there in verse 13 of chapter 11, The glorious truth is that at least some, at least some from the world have come to give God glory. They have repented. And so the witness of the people of God amidst the world in all this suffering and all this pain has seen some come to glorify God. Guys, it is an absolutely revolutionary thing you are doing when you're having that stumbling and awkward conversation with a colleague trying to mention the name of Jesus. Or tell them something about him. It is a world-shifting thing when you share your faith story with someone who doesn't identify as a Christian. This is God's secret weapon in the world at this time. His faithful people, sustained by the powerful spirit, speaking the word of Christ and taking some hits for it. It is a time when Satan and the world just seems to dominate everything, isn't it? everything around us. But through the story of Christ, we can subvert and we can even overcome the world. So stay a post, dig deep. Let's let's lock arms together and be faithful to those around us. Sharing the story and the good news of Christ. 
when it feels like it's going well, when it feels like we're rejected, when it feels like people are responding and listening, and when they're just laughing us off, threatening us with violence, ignoring us, patronizing us, whatever else. A good thing to help us in that will be coming next Sunday night, hearing about how we can have confidence in our testimony to Christ. Listen, here's, here's a thought to help us land this. For a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, today is the closest experience you will ever get to hell. Tomorrow is another step closer to heaven and all the glory that comes with it. But the reverse is true. For those who are not a Christian, today may well be the closest they ever get to the experience of heaven. Because tomorrow is a step closer to everlasting hell. You see, when, when, the, when the seventh trumpet sounds in verse 15 of chapter 11, and as, we, as the angelic beings already announced in chapter 10, that when that trumpet sounds, the mystery of God that's been revealed in the gospel is accomplished. So when, when the seventh trumpet sounds, the end comes. It's God's mercy that that trumpet has not yet sounded. Because when it does, the age of man is over and the age of the kingdom of God is here. And God's kingdom will come fully and finally on earth as in heaven. Verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And we read that the God who is and who was will be worshipped as he reigns in power. And those nations and those people who have so rebelled against him in their anger, people who have said that they hate God and they have rejected him, people who have just plain old ignored him living in his world, will face his righteous judgment. And we read that he will destroy those who have destroyed his earth. He'll destroy those who have destroyed the lives of people he has designed and intended for good purposes, for life and flourishing. Those who have undermined and destroyed that, he will put an end to it all. So when that seventh trumpet sounds, there will be no further chance to repent for those who are not trusting in Christ. And that's why this is the third woe. It is a woe for those people of earth who are finding all of their life and everything in the world. And all the peoples of earth will mourn because of him. But for the people of God, it is a day of joy and celebration. Just like the people of Europe in World War II welcomed uh, and greeted the Allied tanks as they came through and threw flowers on these tanks because they came in power and victory and defend and to uphold their cause. They came from a good kingdom. It's become really popular in recent years for Christians to focus on relieving on on what they call hell on earth. Situations of great darkness and injustice and suffering. And it's been a really important course correction, I think, for many Christians and taps into so much truth that indeed we should and must be doing that. But that kind of thinking goes too far when people define hell simply as the hellish experiences that people have on earth. And it raised any idea of eternal hell. Because that is currently the destiny of many. And yes, Revelation does show us the horrors of the experience of hell on earth that people have. I think this is real about that and we should be concerned by that. And we should mourn with people and we should do all we can to prevent and relieve and help um, them as they face the terrors of Satan inflicting their worlds. 
Of course the people of God should step in there and stand alongside and with and love and bless and serve people. But we must always and uh, constantly remember these things are just a foretaste of the horrors of eternal hell. They are a warning of the hell to come. And God destroys and casts down all his enemies. And so, alongside that, we must, as the people of Christ, be faithful in speaking the truth of Christ, the hope of Christ, the life of Christ, the forgiveness and the grace of Christ as people's only hope, so that they might hear, so that they might repent, so they might find life, find life today. And so that the return of Christ in glory for them is a day of joy and celebration. For Truman Burbank, at first it was really quite scary, I think, as you see it in the film, to discover that all may not be as it seems. Can you imagine, imagine his experience? But actually it became for him this amazing voyage to and for freedom. Because it opened up the door for him to another amazing world that is real and that is true life. And he, he could go after it and, and you're kind of rooting for him as he finds his freedom to the end of the film. My prayer for any not trusting in Christ this morning is that will be your experience. My prayer for us who are trusting in Christ is that we may be faithful witnesses to this king and to his kingdom which is coming. So I'm going to pray that now. Lord Jesus, you are God of all might and power and greatness and righteousness and perfection and holiness and goodness and love. And your judgments and your decisions are just and true and right. We can't see that so often. We struggle to believe it. We struggle to believe, uh, uh, understand these things. We so often think differently. But we submit to you and what your word reveals to us. Lord, I pray any in their hearts who are not trusting in you this morning would come to allow their suffering and the gospel preach them to bring them to you in faith that they may receive eternal life. And Lord, you know how weak, how stumbling, how rebellious we can be as your people in our lack of faithfulness as a witness to Christ. Give us the words to speak and the courage to speak them to those you have placed around us that many more be saved before you return in glory. Will Jesus be glorified, we pray. Amen.